welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. The wages of sin is death. Romans, chapter 6, verse 23, New King James Version. Hello, I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. We're very happy to be with you again, and we pray that you are having a year filled with joy and blessings, especially the joy of having a closer fellowship with our Lord Jesus Christ. Today on Anchored by Truth, we're going to start another new series. We're calling this series, The Seriousness of Sin. And this is going to be one of the most important series that we've ever done, because, frankly, one of the biggest challenges being brought against the Christian faith today is the attempt to eradicate sin. In recent decades, unbelievers, and even some purported believers, have begun trying to pretend that there is no such thing as sin. Now, of course, Anyone who spends just a moment will quickly realize how silly it is to pretend that sin doesn't exist, but that has not stopped people from trying. So, we are going to spend several episodes of Anchored by Truth reaffirming that not only does the Bible firmly teach about the reality of sin, but also that our ordinary life experiences ratify that sin is a continuing plague and problem. Today in the studio, as we begin the series, we have R.D. Fierro, who is an author and the founder of Crystal Sea Books. R.D., why do you think we need to spend so much time talking about sin? Well, I'd like to say hello to everyone before we get started today. And indeed, sin is a very important topic, but you know it's a topic that is often ignored by the church today. As you just mentioned, there are a lot of people, even in the church, who vehemently disagree that sin even exists. And I think that's true for several reasons. First, our broader culture, the culture outside the church, certainly wants to do away with the idea of sin because the concept of sin always entails and it affirms the existence of God. I mean, without God, sin is a meaningless concept. Sin is rebellion against God. So if God didn't exist, then there would be no one to rebel against. So if you do away with God, uh, you would do away with the idea of sin. And people have been trying to do away with the knowledge that God exists ever since Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden. 3,000 years ago, King David wrote in Psalm 14, verse 1, that, quote, The spiritually ignorant fool has said in his heart, There is no God, unquote. That's from the Amplified Bible. For thousands of years, people have been trying to do away with God. It just doesn't work, and it will never work because the Christian faith is true. The Christian faith is the only way to frame a consistently coherent worldview. As Jesus promised in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, verse 18, the Christian faith will survive all the challenges brought against it, and it will survive those of today. Why? Because not only is the Christian faith true, but also because God will always help His people as they carry that truth in an unbelieving world. Right. 
So people today, just like they've been doing for thousands of years, would like to do away with the very idea of sin because the existence of sin points directly to the existence of God. But even further beyond that, the idea of sin points to the existence of standards, standards by which we are all going to be measured. And the idea of sin points to commands and obligations, commands and obligations that apply to all of us, and therefore commands and obligations that we are all expected to obey. And so it goes without saying that modern man, especially in the West, finds the idea of obligatory standards and obligatory commands and requirements that would be applicable to us, all of those ideas, modern man, especially man in the West, finds that those kinds of ideas are just completely objectionable. A modern man does not want to have any standards by which we are judged, and we don't want to have any commands or obligations that we're all expected to obey. And in that sense, we have never really moved past what happened in the Garden of Eden that resulted in Adam and Eve's expulsion. In the Garden, Satan tempted Eve to think that if she ignored God's command not to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, that she would become like God. Genesis chapter 3 verses 4 through 6 report that Satan told Eve, quote, You won't die. God knows that your eyes will be open as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God. And the woman was convinced, Being like God meant that Eve would no longer be subject to God's demands. She found the idea appealing enough that she ate from the forbidden tree, and people have been following suit ever since. Sadly, yes. People object to the idea of sin because sin points not only to the existence of God, but also to the existence of commands and obligations and standards that are established by that God. And a third concept that is inextricably woven into the idea of sin is that of failure. And not just failure, not just making mistakes or doing things incorrectly, but a willful failure, a willful disobedience. And people today in our participation trophy, no grades given culture, hate the idea that there might be somebody somewhere who has decided that they have failed. So those three elements at a minimum all make the notion of sin a very unpopular notion in today's society. A large portion of our 21st century world does not want to even acknowledge that God exists, and they most certainly do not want to acknowledge that God has created standards, obligations, and commands that he has imposed on the creature that he created in his own image. And they certainly object to the idea that they might be determined to have failed in those obligations and duties, to have not achieved the standards that are being applied to them. So when you think about it, it's pretty easy to see why sin has declined in popularity. People today, even many Christians, like to view God as a sort of kindly grandfather. As you put in your book on prayer, Purposeful Prayers, it is popular today to view God as sort of a kindly grandfather watching the activities of his children, applauding them when they do good, shaking his head ruefully when they mess up, always ready with a chocolate chip cookie and a hug to let them know he loves them. As appealing as that image is, it is not a faithful depiction of the God of the Bible, unquote. 
The God of the Bible is a perfectly sovereign, holy, and just God. And a sovereign, holy, and just God, not just sovereign, holy, and just, but a perfectly sovereign, holy, and just God, has the right to be able to set standards and give commands to the creature that he created in his own image. And that's what we're going to talk about in this series. We are going to speak frankly about what happens when we fail to obey those commands and meet those standards. Or as we've titled this series, we're going to talk about the seriousness of sin. And sin is serious. You know, the commission of the very first sin by a man resulted in man losing paradise. And then that first sin of man was followed by an entire succession of sins, lying, evasion, cowardice. And of course, that succession of sins was followed by the first recorded death in the Bible because an animal had to be sacrificed in order to provide the skins that were going to be used as clothing, as a durable covering for Adam and Eve. And then, of course, not long after that, after another succession of sins, we have the first recorded murder in the Bible when Cain killed his brother Abel without any reasonable provocation at all. So you see that that first sin just kicked off a tragic sequence of events that escalated in the dreadfulness of the consequences of sin. And of course, eventually, sin proliferated so much that it would result in the destruction of all life on earth except for the people and the animals that God preserved alive in the Ark of Noah. And that's what we want to focus on today, what we're calling the stakes of sin. Now, when you say stake, that's S-T-A-K-E, not S-T-E-A-K. We're talking about the kind of stake that is at risk in a business or investment decision or the kind of decisions doctors have to make when confronted with severe diseases or injuries. We're not concerned with a dinner option. We're concerned with the hazard that arises for lives and futures when people engage in sinful behavior, not with what happens to their waistline. Right? Right. And as I was just mentioning, there was a lot at stake. In fact, an immeasurable amount when Eve started staring longingly at the fruit on the tree. You know, before Eve's hand reached for the fruit, she and Adam had lived in paradise. Every need of theirs was met. And not only was every need of theirs met, but probably most, if not all, of their wants were satisfied. They had unblemished health. They had all the food they wanted. They had good and meaningful work. And they had unbroken communion with God. Well, after Eve put that fruit in her mouth and gave some to Adam, who also ate, all of that was gone. The stakes that were at risk in the Garden of Eden in that seemingly simple transaction were enormous. I don't think we can ever measure them entirely. Because not only did Adam and Eve lose paradise, they condemned themselves to experience physical death. Now, of course, their physical death didn't happen right away, but it became a certainty. And they brought that reality, the reality of the loss of paradise, the certainty of physical death, they brought that reality to all of their descendants, because Adam and Eve were obviously the father and mother of everyone who would be born according to the flesh. And the Bible tells that Adam and Eve's decision to sin didn't just affect people. Their sin didn't just affect them and their descendants, it affected the entirety of the created order. When God pronounced a curse on them because of their rebellion, part of the curse was that nature itself would turn against them. 
In Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, God said to Adam, quote, Since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. All your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it, unquote. And in the Apostle Paul's letter to the Roman church, Paul noted that, quote, Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we all know that creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time, unquote. That's Romans chapter 8, verse 20 through 22. And both of those quotes are from the New Living Translation. And that's one of the big things that we want to get into during this series on the seriousness of sin. Sin does not just affect the individual sinner who commits a specific act, a specific sin. The effect of sin ripple outwards, like ripples in a pond when a rock falls in. You know, we often say to ourselves about some sin or another, well, who's it going to hurt? But what we are really saying is that we want to believe that our sin hurts only us. But that is rarely, if ever, true. Sin does not just hurt the sinner. Sin hurts people far beyond the sinner. And often it hurts people that the sinner might never even have met or ever even knew. And sadly, way too often, the effects of sin are irreversible. At least they're irreversible on this side of glory. Someone who drives drunk doesn't just put their own life at risk. They risk the lives of everyone on the road in their vicinity. The person who takes illegal narcotics doesn't just affect their health. When they destroy their health, they affect everyone who loves them, often costing others enormous amounts of time, money, and even the loved one's health. An unfaithful spouse doesn't just affect their wife or husband. Infidelity affects children and even parents and grandparents. The effects of a single sin can change the course of not just one person's life, but that of dozens or even hundreds of others. Sin is indeed serious business. Exactly. And we rarely think about that. We don't want to think about that. In our culture, we are so surrounded by sin that we rarely stop to consider the larger implications of sin. But the stakes of sin are enormous because they can affect not only lives in this world, but sin can affect eternal destinies. Just as in the garden, When Adam and Eve began to turn away from God, when they began to engage in sin, they began to separate themselves from God. And when they separated themselves from God, they separated themselves from the author of life, love, and freedom, because God is the only one who can provide those things truly. Too often the choices that we make affect a lot of other people. If a parent turns away from Jesus and away from Jesus' father, well, that parent is making a decision that is certainly going to have an impact on their children. And that impact will be felt regardless of whether the child is still living at home or not. Now, how horrible is it going to be for someone in hell to hear, to learn that their refusal to accept Christ as their Savior also resulted in other people rejecting Jesus? You know, and that's the point that I really want to hammer home today. Sin is serious in the effects that it can have in this world, no doubt about that. But sin's consequences are not limited to this world or to the life that we live in this world. Sin is ultimately what will affect everyone's eternal destiny, and we need to recognize that. 
There is a God, and the Bible makes it clear that we all know there is a God. And as hard as we may try to hide that fact from ourselves, the knowledge that there is a God never leaves us. That's Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, quote, But God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. Ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God, unquote. And that's from the New Living Translation. Yes. We all know that there is a God. But as that verse from Romans says, our sin and wickedness induce us to try to suppress that knowledge. The Greek word that is often translated as suppress is the same word that would be used to try to compress a strong spring, try to squeeze it down. Suppressing the knowledge of God takes effort. Doing that is sinful itself. So one thing we must all reckon with is that there is a God But of course, along with that recognition comes the awareness that we have all failed that God in some way. Romans chapter 3 verse 10 puts it this way, quote, As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one, unquote. That verse from Romans may be quoting Psalm 14 verse 1, which expresses a very similar sentiment. Right. So we call our failures to meet God's standards or comply with the obligations that he has established for us, we call that sin. In R.C. Sproul's famous words, sin is cosmic rebellion. Well, like all rebellion, sin causes separation. And in this case, sin separates us from God. And there are consequences to that separation. Sin, you know, it's kind of a cosmic bet between the sinner and the lawgiver. But sin is always a losing bet. The sinner always loses because in this case, the lawgiver is omnipotent and omniscient. And the lawgiver is infinite. So whether the person thinks about it or not, they are playing for some very high stakes when they start betting against God by sinning against God. When Adam and Eve listened to Satan and decided that they wanted to be like God, they were playing in a game where the stakes could not be calculated. One of the stakes that was in play was life itself. That first sin in the garden produced a physical separation of Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden, but ultimately that first sin resulted in the separation of Adam and Eve's spirits and souls from their physical bodies. Philosophers sometimes note that there is a difference between distinguishing between two things and separating those things. Man possesses both material and immaterial attributes. We refer to the material aspect of people as our bodies, and we refer to our immaterial aspect as a soul or spirit. Some Christians believe there is a difference between the soul and spirit, whereas other Christians see those terms as being synonymous. We can distinguish between man's immaterial and material aspects, and we don't affect the person. We can distinguish between a person's soul and spirit and their body, and we haven't done that person any harm. But if we were to separate that person's soul and spirit from their body, we would call that death. Right. So in a way that can only be understood by God, that first sin made it certain that there would come a time when the immaterial part of Adam and Eve's beings would be separated from the material portion of their body. 
Adam and Eve weren't the first people to experience physical death. That was quite likely Abel. But Adam and Eve did ultimately experience physical death, as have all of their descendants. Well, except for Elijah and Enoch. The Bible tells us that God took Elijah to heaven in a chariot of fire, and the Bible tells us that, quote, When Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. After he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked faithfully with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Although Enoch lived a total of 365 years, Enoch walked faithfully with God. Then he was no more because God took him away, unquote. Duly noted, but there are some commentators who believe that the two witnesses that are mentioned in chapter 11 of the book of Revelation will be Elijah and Enoch, and that's when Elijah and Enoch will experience physical death. But setting Elijah and Enoch aside, all the other people throughout history have experienced a physical death, including Jesus. But the larger stake, the bigger stake, the higher stake is whether or not our physical death will be followed by what is sometimes referred to as the second death. Now, second death is not death in the sense that it's a departure from one phase of life to another, but the second death is being consigned to hell for all eternity, eternally separated from God's goodness and benevolence. So for people, the stakes of sin really don't get any higher than that. Strictly speaking, nothing can separate us from God's presence. God is omnipresent. He is present at all times and all places, including hell. But hell is where God's wrath is eternally present, not his goodness, his kindness. Sin separates us from God's favor and blessing, and that is the danger that we must all consider. That's the bad news. The good news, and it is really good news, that's what the word gospel means, the good news. The good news is that our sin does not have to result in our eternal separation from God's goodness and mercy. Jesus has paid the debt for our sin. So when we place our trust in him, we change our eternal destination from hell to heaven. Praise the Lord. The New Testament writers note this blessed opportunity continually. All the New Testament writers recognize that sin has separated us from God's love and goodness, but in their very next breath, they always praise God that Jesus died an atoning death on the cross to make redemption and salvation possible. The Apostle Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, quote, God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were, but as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. Unquote. That's from the New Living Translation. Paul well understood the stakes of sin. That sin left unresolved would result in the worst possible outcome. But Paul never ended his message with the recognition of sin. Paul saw that grace made sin serve a useful purpose. Sin separated from God's goodness, but grace, the unmerited favor of God, made restoration available. So, all of this points out why we need to soberly and honestly discuss the seriousness of sin. Sin's an unpopular idea in our day and age, but sin forces us to recognize that there is a God who has established standards and obligations for us, and that we have failed to obey our obligations. We have failed to achieve the standards. We have violated God's standards. And the consequence of that failure, even in this world, is probably not going to be limited to just the life of the sinner. Sin's effects ripple, 
And sometimes they're going to echo down through the years and down through a great many lives. The answer to the question, who is this going to hurt, may be dozens, hundreds, or thousands. You know, it's the exception rather than the rule that the only person hurt by sin is the sinner. And all too often, the people who suffer most are the ones that the sinner professes to love the most. Sin's effects ripple. And as we've been talking about, those ripples are not confined to this life or this world. The worst things that happen as a consequence of sin are the eternal stakes. And that's why, despite the fact that sin isn't a very popular idea these days, we must talk about it. But like the Apostle Paul and the other New Testament writers, we should always connect our discussions of sin with the availability of grace. Adam and Eve started a sad and tragic sequence in the Garden of Eden, but as soon as they sinned, God began his plan of redemption. I love how you put it in your epic poem, The Genesis Saga. Yet with love, God still thought of man. God determined to thwart evil scheme. God's grace now rose to four. God's mercy now entered the scene. In due time, God's only Son would crush Satan's schemes and dreams. God's Son would die for the lost, a beloved people to cleanse and redeem. In Eden, Satan tempted man, but in the wilderness he met defeat. A Savior sent from heaven above brought salvation full and complete. And that's the big reason we do projects like the Genesis Saga, which we're planning on releasing shortly. Sin is serious. Sin's consequences are catastrophic. Sin's consequences are terrible in this world, and sin's consequences can be eternal. But they don't have to be. God has made salvation available to anyone who will simply acknowledge their sin. You're alluding to 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, where the Apostle John wrote, quote, If we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness, unquote. That's so counterintuitive to the way the world thinks and wants to work. The people of the world want to hide their sin and to pretend that it does not exist. But God tells us that when we confess our sins to him, he will forgive us. We rightfully hate the fact that we sin, but it is a further sin to resist the provision that God has made to save us from ourselves. So the big idea that we wanted to introduce today is that sin is serious. The best way to deal with its seriousness is by looking to the provisions that God has made to change the consequence of our sin from eternal damnation to eternal blessing. This sounds like a great time to pray. Since we have just been talking about the fact that God will forgive us when we confess our sins, today let's listen to a prayer of corporate confession. John has assured us that when we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Prayer of Corporate Confession Father, perfect in justice, holy in all ways, we stand before you to declare that we know you are a great, powerful, and just God. Before time began marking the rise, decline, and coming renewal of creation, you established the laws to govern all seasons and creatures. Your laws are perfect because you are perfect. 
Lord, we acknowledge today that we have sinned and fallen short of your expectations. We know that we have done this of our own volition, that our transgressions are not caused by anything that you have done or failed to do. As you forgive us, help us to freely forgive those who offend us when they ask for pardon. Let us embrace our brothers and sisters with repentant hearts as readily as you embrace us. We can only do so by knowing the gracious love that you brought to us when Christ came and died for us. He tore apart the veil between your people and you, sent the Spirit to refresh our souls, and so it is in his precious name that we ask for mercy, pardon, and a readiness to serve you. Amen. Is the Bible important in your life? Supporting Anchored by Truth with a contribution is an easy way to put your faith into action. The opportunity to help is available at crystalseabooks.com. How wonderful would it be for Jesus to commend us because we made His Word a priority in our lives and giving. We are grateful for your support and partnership. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage friends to tune in also or to listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com where We're not perfect, but our boss is. And for those of you who need that website one more time, that's crystalseabooks.com. Crystal, C-R-Y-S-T-A-L-C-S-E-A, and books, B-O-O-K-S, Thank you for your support.